Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that takes you inside the biggest deals at the biggest clubs in world football. I'm Johnny McFarlane and today I'm joined by Transfer Window regulars Ian McGarry and Duncan Castles. This week, it's Premier League manager carnage as six clubs potentially look to change their coaching menu. We ask if England is becoming like Serie A in the 1990s. Fred Neymar, Sandro, we look at the stars on Jose Mourinho's Manchester United radar and separate speculation from reality. And as Manchester City have hit an unprecedented 100 points for a season, we ask, are they the best ever Premier League team? Okay, we're going to start with the managerial carnage that's taking place in the Premier League at the moment. Ian, we're looking at Arsenal, Chelsea, Spurs, West Ham, Leicester and Everton possibly all looking for new managers. Is the Premier League becoming Serie A of the 1990s where managers <laughs> are getting 10, 10 minutes in the door and they're already under pressure? Is that what, what's happening now? Very good analogy from a man of your age there, Johnny. You obviously were watching your um, Gazetta Football Italia um, in, your, in your week's school shorts and your T-shirt. Um, <laughs> yes, it's... Uh, it's as many managers that I can remember in sort of the 20 odd years I've been covering the Premier League, Johnny, that, that are being replaced in the summer. Six is, and possibly it could go up to eight or ten even, um, but six we know for sure. Um, Spurs you mentioned, but Spurs obviously is uh, in, the, in the balance after what Pochettino said um, uh, when the season uh, finished regarding that he needs to talk with the club and they need to operate in a different way you need to take risks he said which is something Daniel Levy is completely averse to so uh, he would not have been pleased to hear his current manager and sweetheart say that um, although Everton and West Ham I think we can have we, we saw two Red Adairs of the Premier League if you like going into firefight relegation or at least just uh, up the club and Sam Allardyce at Sam um, Goodison and David Moyes at uh, the London Stadium uh, no, no real surprise that you know, the contract breaks will be um, triggered in both those managerial cases. Allardyce obviously suffered uh, death by a thousand surveys uh, when the, the club um, put, put it out to the fans to ask how they thought he performed. Moyes a little bit, I think, a bit more unlucky in the sense that, you know, he's done the job he was asked to do, but he's not been given the chance to actually build on that uh, now and, and actually have a proper transfer window to invest. But um, West Ham have got a massive problem between the management and their fans. A uh, huge impasse with regards to the club ownership uh, behaving in ways with, which the fans don't agree with. We've seen, obviously, uh, very sort of, um, disturbing protests and, uh, at the London Stadium uh, and also away from home as well from West Ham fans. Duncan, uh, I think, has got some very interesting information on Paolo Fonseca, who I think would be the kind of photo fit for, that West Ham fans would like, Duncan. Yeah, it, and look, Paolo Fonseca is very keen to move to the Premier League. Um, he's done two years at Shakhtar Donetsk, um, has won the title both years, is just about to play the, the cup final this coming weekend um, to, I think, do that back-to-back as well and obviously had a very good Champions League campaign. First, first manager to defeat, defeat Manchester City this season. He almost went to the Premier League in November, um, as some story we discussed on the transfer window 
uh, at the time, which was that after Everton failed to uh, extract Marco Silva from Watford, they then had um, a meeting with Fonseca, um, offered him the job, he accepted, but Shakhtar wouldn't let him go at that point because their Champions League campaign was going so well and they wanted to retain him into the, the second half of the season. Um, he His contract expires at the end of this season. Um, Shakhtar want to keep him. I've offered him a very big deal to stay there, but he is set on trying to get an English Premier League club and um, is, has been offered to um, several of the clubs that you um, have mentioned as having vacancies this summer, um, one of which is West Ham United. Um, he met David Sullivan yesterday um, with a couple of his agents. I'm told that uh, Sullivan was impressed um, with the conversation he had with Fonseca. Um, I, as, as of last night, when I um, checked with my contacts, there hadn't been an offer from West Ham, but um, I believe Sullivan was being put under pressure to make a decision quickly because um, of the other vacancies that are available. And I, and I think Everton remains um, a possibility there. Um, as we talked about last week, Marco Silva was the preferred choice uh, when the, the dispense with Ronald Koeman. Um, there have been conversations through this season, again with Marco Silva. Um, as of last week, a decision hadn't been taken on whether to um, dispense with Supersize Sam and uh, and bring a new man in. Um, I was being told at that time that Silva was a strong candidate. What's developed um, in the background and perhaps explains why they haven't, I'm told, uh, established the pre-contract with Marco Silva is that Watford are, are um, taking legal action over uh, Everton's approach, what they you know the, what they consider to be an illegal approach to uh, Marco Silva in November, and obviously if Everton were to now appoint Marco Silva in the midst of legal action, potential legal action going to court with Watford, that could um, increase their liability in, in the case. So um, it seems that Watford's pressure on Everton over Marco Silva could have an effect over if they take Marco Silva or what payment is made to take Marco Silva and potentially looking at other candidates again, like Paolo Fonseca, who I think would prefer to move to Everton than he would to go to West Ham United. I think that <clears throat> aspect of compensation, Duncan, is something which Everton have been trying to agree um, amicably with uh, Watford for at least a week. Uh, rather than see it go to court. But Watford's owners are being very um, stubborn with regards to how much money they want. You're right about the liability and indemnity increase on both sides. Uh, should Silva become Everton manager and given the um, very public uh, way that Watford protested when um, Everton sacked Cumin and then eventually appointed Supersize. So um, that'll be an interesting one to keep an eye on. But of course, as you said, neither Silva nor Fonseca will wait forever. For clubs to hang, you know, to wait and make make their minds up, and of course, Johnny, we've got um, the never-ending story of Arsenal's uh, new manager and who that might be, and interesting developments today in that they cleared out the entire backroom staff, which is um, not unusual, obviously, when a manager leaves, but it's unusual in the sense that guys like Colin Lewin, who was chief of medical, um, has been at the club I think for more than twenty years, 
Um, and he's not necessarily one who you would think would need to leave uh, in, in the interim waiting for a new manager to be appointed. Some people may see this as uh, a sign that a new manager has already been agreed, but not yet announced, because obviously a new manager would be the person to say, I want everyone cleared out, or I want some people to stay and some not, etc., etc. My information is that that's not the case. They're still vacillating about it. Um, there has been talk about Mikel Arteta, who I, I don't think would be the right move for either him or the club, because he's, he's basically been an apprentice to Pep Guardiola for just over a year. And I don't think taking a club like Arsenal, despite obviously having been an Arsenal player and Arsenal captain, is necessarily um, the, the right first step in management for him because he's really being thrown at the deep end. Um, although you would say that Wenger set quite a low bar in his last five or six years um, as, as head coach there. Um, Julian Nagelsmann is also being mentioned. That would be, I think, more realistic, given obviously we have um, a new technical director at Arsenal who was at Borussia Dortmund and who knows Nagelsmann well. Um, and Duncan um, was saying uh, prior to us coming on air that, that Nagelsmann had turned down a, a very big offer uh, to go to Bayern Munich. So you must think, well, he's got something else uh, on his plate. And then you've got other candidates who are still uh, milling around, like Luis Enrique, who obviously with uh, Thomas Tuchel taking the PSG job, his... Uh, options are, have been narrowed and we should say as well that that was a a job uh, that, um, just a job filling um, story that uh, Duncan broke on the transfer window more than a month ago certainly before anyone else did so um, you know our listeners are well aware of exactly uh, that one developing so it's 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 just um, I think at the moment it's a bit of a mess we you described it as carnage Johnny I think it is carnage in terms of the managers have been replaced. Look at the managers who were sacked during the course of this last season as well. And you add it to that, the five, six, maybe seven who will change again in the summer. And I think we're seeing that the obviously it's money motivated now and the financial rewards for staying in the Premier League, for competing in the Premier League and for um, obviously going into European football are now such that clubs have got less patience and will sack more quickly. I think, I think it's fascinating because it, you know we're not only talking about those clubs in kind of the middle tier of, of the division, you know the, the, the aspiring clubs like Everton, and the, and the clubs like West Ham United who've who've just survived, another aspiring club like Leicester City, and wanting to change. You, you could even look at the top six, and you can say Manchester City obviously not going to change the manager, but may lose Mikel Arteta if Arsenal were to take the decision to to let him go. Um, Manchester United are losing, um, the be without question, the best assistant manager in football, in Rui Faria, who announced his, his decision to leave um, Jose Mourinho after 17 years um, of, uh, in which they've won 20 major trophies together. Um, a total which, uh, you know, so I was looking at the numbers afterwards, a total only surpassed by manage in, in terms of managerial teams by Jock Steen and Sean Fallon's 25 major trophies at Celtic, which is quite an amazing achievement. Um, Liverpool, as we um, broke on the transfer window a couple of weeks ago, um, are, uh, you also have a 17-year managerial partnership that's come to an end there, albeit in very different circumstances, with um, Zelko Bubic walking out on, on Jurgen Klopp. So he needs a a man to replace a guy he describes as the brains of, of his managerial team. Um, Chelsea will sack Antonio Conte after get a replacement. Um, Tottenham 
have to have this discussion with Pochettino, where Pochettino is clearly pressuring Daniel Levy to be given more control and better resources to um, have a go at winning uh, trophies. Um, and Arsenal have, you know, have effectively sacked Arsene Wenger after 22 years and are, are in the process of replacing. So every one of the top six clubs has a managerial change of, uh, of, of some great significance going on um, or potentially going on, apart from, I think you could say, Manchester City, which is, I, I don't think losing Mikel Arteta is going to be of, a, of great hindrance to um, Pep Guardiola were that to happen. Which kind of because Arteta was has only been there a year, he was brought in to be the the kind of local knowledge, the the, the man who knew the Premier League, um, who spoke Spanish, um, and could work alongside Guardiola's very established um, coaching team that he brought with him. Um, and I think that the fact that Arteta wouldn't be such a big loss makes it um, kind of interesting that Arteta is such a strong candidate for Arsenal. And and I, I would go along with your view, Ian, that it would be a, a real high-risk appointment for Arsenal to put Mikel Arteta, who's effectively still a, a managerial apprentice. He's one year into being a, an assistant coach and is essentially um, Michael Carrick um, one year down the line. Um, and do you want to, to put that kind of role, um, especially after, after the end of the Arsene Wenger era, 22 years of, of such dominance in one club in the hands of basically an apprentice, a new man, new man in football management who could be really <coughs> sure, but undoubtedly still has a lot to learn. I'm reminded, Duncan, of a conversation I had with Josie Mourinho um, when Sir Alex Ferguson, when news of Sir Alex Ferguson's um, imminent departure at the end of the season, uh, I think it was 2013, um, was broken. And uh, I quipped to Josie, this was a you know, very sort of casual conversation on the phone, um, do you fancy it? And he said, you've got to be joking. And I said, why not? It's Manchester United. He said, no, no, no. No one wants to be the man who succeeds Sir Alex. You want to be the man after the man who succeeds Sir Alex. And I think Arsenal in a similar position. They're going to have to fill a job, a very, very attractive, and obviously a huge club with great history, et cetera, et cetera. But do you really want to be the man who replaces Arsene Wenger? Is that not less, less pertinent, though? Because when you were replacing Ferguson, they were title winners. Uh, Wenger, I know he's won the, a few FA Cups in the last few years, but overall people would say that Arsenal have underachieved in the last five years. I, I would say, Johnny, rather than filling the boots of the manager, look at the squads that you inherit. And Manchester United were in a real mess. Ferguson knew when to get out. He knew that most of the squads who were performing high um, for him were ageing and coming to the end of their the most... Uh, successful part of their careers and it was one of the reasons that you know I think Moyes got quite a, a rough trot at Manchester United because he wasn't given uh, immediately the um, the financial clout to to replace as many players as he needed to and in fact even Louis van Gaal would complain that he was the same and so Jose Mourinho is still struggling to to restructure that squad even having spent the money he, that he has but he still knows there's more to be done so at Arsenal I think they're they're not quite as badly off as, as that United squad were now, but at the same time, they need their major holes in that in the first eleven, which need to be filled. Yeah, the, the irony of that conversation you had with with Jose is that um, Mourinho was actually offered that job uh, by Sir Alex and did yeah. accept 
to take that job and even went as far as uh, agreeing a pre-contract with Manchester United. Um, one of the sort of great hidden stories of English football. But dropped away, uh, decided to, to go to Chelsea instead um, when Roman Abramovich was made aware of um, the agreement uh, that Mourinho had with Manchester United to come in and succeed Ferguson and said, well, I, I'd like you to come back to Chelsea instead. And, um, and perhaps... Perhaps Jose's thinking there was uh, that, um, albeit uh, misguided thinking, that um, Chelsea was a better uh, place to go than, than than being the immediate successor to Ferguson. Um, he, he went back for family reasons. Um, his family, his, his son was was going had an apprenticeship at Fulham, and his daughter was going to study at um, college in London, and his wife preferred to live in London, so. The plan had always been to do as they're doing now, which would be Josie working in Manchester, uh, the family living in London, and um, Mourinho commuting back and forward when, when he could do to, to visit them. And obviously it was when Mourinho's talked about how um, it suited his family to, to go back to London and, and keep them together. Um, so that was one aspect. And the other aspect was the, the appeal of going back to Chelsea and proving Abramovich wrong, essentially, um, and, and trying to win the, the Champions uh, League with them, which is the thing he failed to do first time around and ultimately failed to do second time around because, um, as we talk about in this podcast all the time, um, it, 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 no matter how good a manager you are, uh, with Chelsea, it always ends the same way, which is a, a debate over which players you should sign and recruitment and uh, taking the team forward. Uh, to the level required to succeed in the Champions League, and um, and then getting sacked by the the coach by the by the owner. Sorry, um, once he uh, decides that he can get another coach and he will, he will provide him with the Champions League instead. Ian, you touched on the red adairs of the Premier League earlier on the, the Sam Allardyce's, David Moyes, Pardew, Tony Pulis. These guys potentially will be all gone at the end of this season. Does that signal a, a sea change in terms of recruitment of managers in the Premier League? <clears throat> I, I, I'd like to say that it did, um, Johnny, but uh, history will definitely contradict me. And one thing, you know, as um, as definite as death taxes and a Celtic treble is that uh, <laughs> is that is that super sized Sam will turn up somewhere uh, next season. Uh, like he always does, um, whether it's at the start of the season or whether it's, again, the red idea, save us from relegation or save us from our dreadful start to our season, please. That will happen. Um, and, and with, with regard to the others, um, you know, Pulis obviously got uh, had a job and also um, I think Pardew may be the one, may be the casualty who may not come back from that spell at West Brom where he, you know, the, the, the results were just awful. I mean, he did nothing to in any way inspire that club. And you look what Darren Moore did in four games. He, he got more points and more wins than, than Pardew had in four times as many games. That tells you a lot about Pardew's tenure at West Brom, and I think it tells you a lot about how people probably view Pardew now in terms of uh, employing him. With David not, Moyes... Not just, not, not just the results, Ian. I think, uh, I think the, the stories of, of his actual management of that club... Yes, will, absolutely. Should, should ensure that he has never given another Premier League job again. Yeah. I think... I think the only way we would see him back in the Premier League is were he to take a Championship club um, up. Um, I think I think you're right. I think you can delete him from the list of the of the the, the standard Redditors. 
I think I think the the red the red hair dear or used to be red, Mr. Moyes. Um, <laughs> I think does have a chance to come back. I think he's done a, yeah. a decent job at West Ham. I don't think it's been spectacular. I think he's been a victim of his style of play versus the you know ludicrous expectations of the West Ham fan base who you know believe they should be playing like Cruyff's dream team in Barcelona, and they always have done. And that's not going to happen at West Ham. Um, West I'm Ham. Not, I don't know if you've heard from Moyes, but I'm not entirely sure that, that he is completely excluded from continuing at West Ham yet. As of last week, I, my understanding was they were, they were like Everton, they were, they were going to make a decision over it. And I, Fonseca has not been offered this job, and, and um, you know, David Sullivan was impressed with them, but that doesn't necessarily mean that because he's interviewing candidates that he won't stick with the man who kept them mm, up. I think I think Moyes will be the sacrificial lamb to the fans, Duncan. That they, okay. they will get rid of him because they want to try and appease an angry fan base who clearly, you know, want change of ownership at the club, and they'll try and bring in someone like Fonseca, who's got a much better reputation for playing open and expansive football um, and getting results as well. Um, I think David Moyes, unfortunately, has obviously been damaged by his time at Manchester United and Real Sociedad. Um, and even Sunderland as well, and and so his ability to attract players, even to West Ham with big wages and stuff, is is limited. It doesn't mean to say he won't get another job somewhere else, where perhaps the owners are more pragmatic, and and willing to simply ensure uh, that their club stays in the Premier League rather than you know playing football, it, you know thrills everyone, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, um, it's it's just it's just it's going to be a very very. Um, interesting summer because it's not just players um, who are moving uh, in their droves it will be managers as well which makes this a, a different kind of transfer window and it also asks questions as well about um, club recruitment policies if they're already recruiting players um, when they actually have, don't know who their co- head coach is going to be but again at some clubs that's the norm anyway that the manager has you know, a very minor say in the recruitment process so it's going to be a very interesting summer from both those points of view Okay, well, from the managers to players now, and Manchester United have been pretty constantly in the news in the last week in terms of potential moves. Neymar is a name that's been mentioned. Duncan had the story about Alexandro, something we've discussed on this podcast, but that looks like it's going to go ahead. And of course, we also have some chat about Fred. Duncan, what's happening there? Yeah, look, Manchester United are... um doing a lot of work on transfers at present. Um, you know, we've seen Jose Mourinho multiple occasions underlining how he likes to have new players coming in as quickly as possible. And um, you know, this this window with the World Cup coming up in a shortened um, transfer window in the Premier League, um, yeah, the, the window closing before the, the competition starts kind of puts extra pressure on that and, and also probably feeds into this managerial change process we're, we're seeing in the clubs because it makes sense for them to get those appointments in as quickly as possible so they can be involved in this transfer market. But they're, um, he's trying to do a lot of work on the team, as, as we've talked about, um, a whole new defence, um, Alexandro, they have progressed to the point where Juventus expect him uh, to go to the club and he's, he's one of the players Juventus are prepared to sacrifice 
Um, they think they can get a fee in the region of 60 million euros for him. Sand Alexandro wants to leave, as he did in January when Manchester United tried to, to get him then. Juventus wouldn't sell. Um, so it kind of ticks boxes for all three parties and the player wants to go get the pay rise. Um, Manchester United desperately need a left back. And um, Juventus need cash to, to overhaul their team and satisfy um, Allegri, who is um, saying he'll only stay if he gets a big turnover of players um, uh, out and a big turn of players in to build a Champions League squad. Another guy that United um, tried to get in January um, and uh, kind of lost out in the battle to City, Manchester City, and that Manchester City were prepared to offer more money for, from him, for him and uh, United stepped away. It was Fred, uh, Brazilian midfielder at Shakhtar. Um, that situation has reversed to an extent that United have made um, an offer to Fred in terms of salary and, and, um, and contract length, which is appealing to the player who wants to leave and wants to come to England. Um, there's still interest from Manchester City. He's waiting for the end of the Ukrainian season. Um, Shakhtar are asking or saying the release clause is 60 million euros. Um, that's what we want for him. And um, Fred's representatives are trying to handle it in a way that they can get that fee down um, and uh, stay on good terms with Shakhtar. Um, and they're waiting, basically waiting until the end of the season to... to advance those negotiations. But as it stands, there's a good chance that Fred will be um, the main midfield recruit for Manchester United in the summer with another one coming in if, um, for sure if Marouane Fellaini can't be convinced to sign a new contract. Interesting what will happen then, Duncan, to Juan Mata and Herrera, uh, given that Michael Carrick's obviously retiring and going into coaching as well. <clears throat> Gotta wonder, you know, those players have um, featured under Mourinho, but Fred would be, you'd think, a first choice pick, and of course it will mean a question over whether or not Mourinho is willing to play Paul Pogba at left side of attacking midfield rather in the midfield pivot of two. So um, it'd be interesting to see how that one pans out regarding, you know, how United line up next season. Well, I mean, they, he's definitely bringing Fred in. If Fred is the guy who, if that deal goes through, and Fred is the, the number one choice for that position, Fred will be a starter with Bogba and Matic in a, in a three-man midfield. I would expect expect them to play the same formation as playing for the, most of the second half of the season. Um, obviously, upgrade the fullbacks to give them, you know, better a better a more reliable defence and. Uh, um, more better attack from the from the wing positions. Valencia will remain as a first choice right back, but they, they, he wants a backup right back who can put pressure on them, and he wants a a top quality leader, experienced centre back in there. It, talking about the guys going out, I thought it was you know the the lineup on Sunday was interesting, and obviously Michael Carrick started his first Premier League game of the season to give him his big farewell. A whole completely deserved um, one of the one of the best midfielders in the Premier League for me um, over the length of his career. A, a real understated player who the quality of his passing and I, I remember interviewing him before Manchester United's last Champions League final and talking to him about how he 
the thing that stuck out for me in his play is that he always tries to pass the ball forward. Always took the the option to to try and get the ball forward and whenever he could, rather than taking safety first passes. And he was, you know, he quite liked chatting about that and said, "Yeah, that's that's kind of the cornerstone of my midfield play." The other guys he played at the weekend, uh, it looked Daley Blind getting a start for the first time for months, and uh, Matteo Darmian was that seemed very much the here's your opportunity to say goodbye to the fans. And I was half expecting Rui Faria to come on as a second-half substitute. So <laughs> I've seen that happen before. <laughs> yeah. Well, you played against Rui Faria, didn't you? I did, yeah. In, in Los Angeles, you remember him getting sent off in that game against yeah. the... against the, the <laughs> um, So those, Blind and Darmian for sure, on their way out. Ander Herrera, I think, has done enough at the tail end of the season to... Uh, get back in Mourinho's good books and will probably be retained. And I think I think Juan Mata will stay. I, 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 th- I think with Juan Mata, were they to get a, a good offer from a club, which was appealing to him, then they'd definitely um, listen to that and be prepared to you know, relieve themselves of the wages and, uh, and use the money elsewhere in the team. But Mata has been a, a relatively important player for Mourinho both of his seasons at at Manchester United and, and does give him a, an option of a different different kind of a of attacking midfielder, um, which which has been useful too. Duncan, one of the stories that's been doing the rounds, as I mentioned in the intro, is uh, Neymar to Manchester United. What's your feelings on that transfer? Manchester United tried really hard to get Neymar last summer, or I should say Jose Mourinho tried really hard to get Neymar last summer. Had a lot of conversations with the player, um, telling him he wanted uh, to bring him uh, from Barcelona to the Premier League, and Neymar encouraged that. Um, but uh, quite simply, they were blown out of the water by Paris Saint-Germain in terms of uh, the scale of salary um, that PSG Qatar gave um, Neymar highest highest salary in the game, and obviously the willingness to um, to pay the release clause and the highest transfer fee of the game. Um, I'm sure the, the the interest remains. In fact, I can you know give you a bit of news here in that um, when Neymar was in Brazil, when he went off to Brazil after um, having his, his, his after suffering his metatarsal injury. Um, and uh, Nasser, uh, the, the chief executive of PSG, and Antero Enrique flew out to Brazil to um, to try and convince Neymar basically to stay at the club and come back. Um, one of the things that Neymar asked for as a condition of uh, uh, remaining at the club was that a change of manager, and the manager he proposed was Jose Mourinho. So you can see there that those conversations between Mourinho and Neymar last year had a, an effect on the player. Um, obviously, Man United as a club would re- retain an interest in Neymar. Who wouldn't? Um, especially if you're a club with so obsessed about commercial revenue as as uh, Ed Woodward and the Glazers are. But realistically, I, I see no chance of 
of them signing Neymar in the current window. Neymar is pushing Paris Saint-Germain as hard as he can to force them to kind of say, oh, wash their hands of him and allow him to join Real Madrid. Real Madrid is a club he wants to go to. Real Madrid have the money available to pay the salary, um, pay the transfer fee and have him as their top target. Manchester United, um, I don't think can go there on, on wages and, and um, transfer fee. I don't think the Glazers would go there, uh, especially with the amount of um, rebuild they have to do in other areas of the team. And, and quite simply, Neymar wants to go back to Spain. So um, just, I can't see any way in which that transfer flies. Yeah, I agree with you, Duncan. Yeah, I think it's. I still, I still think it'd be a massive um, embarrassment for PSG and Qatar to see Neymar leave after one season. <clears throat> However, we've all seen situations before where a player can agitate his way out, um, regardless of the strength of his contract or the amount of money he earns, etc., etc. This sort of backup plan to Neymar is Juventus, Argentine. Striker stroke um, attacking midfielder Paulo Dybala, who has told Juve that he wants to leave the club and achieve his Champions League ambitions elsewhere, having failed in four seasons to, to win that particular competition, despite having won four consecutive Italian doubles of uh, Scudetto and Coppa Italia, but feels that he's outgrown um, the ambitions of Juventus. Juventus, likewise with Alexandro, slightly different. We see Dybala as someone who wants and will agitate to leave whereas Alexandro is someone who they think is dispensable. Um, but Dybala would fetch in excess of 100, maybe up to 150 million euros in, in the current market climate. That would give Juve significant spending power to keep Allegri and to uh, follow on from Duncan's exclusive story that Allegri was demanding five or six players to leave and five or six to come in and upgrade. So that would give him a war chest, which would allow that to happen, albeit losing two of his better players or best players, he'd be able to recruit uh, cleverly and um, and in more numbers as well. So, the ballot to Real Madrid, I think, is a very, very probable. But, of course, if the Neymar situation changed, then the ballot to PSG would become a possibility as well. My information is that the player wants to, to play in Spain, however. So, um, I, I, I can't see Barcelona finding any more money than they've spent already in the last 12 months to be able to finance the ballast transfer. But again, they, they may surprise us and sell a player uh, or two players in order to be able to do that. What's interesting about the is that that kind of transfer, as we saw with Neymar last summer, ignites the entire European window. When a player leaves a big club for another big club at that kind of price, let's just call it 150 million euros, that means that other clubs have money to spend. Other clubs get scared because they're not spending. Other clubs need to invest and need to upgrade their players. So if Dybala goes to Real, then Gareth Bale becomes available. Gareth Bale, would he go to back to the Premier League? Well, that's probably his only option, although I suspect Bayern Munich would be very interested in replacing him, given that they'll be losing Frank Ribery and Arjen Robin to old age this summer. So I think Bale to Bayern Munich would then be a possibility and you just go on knocking down the dominoes from there. I think, I think, yeah, I think, I think you're right. Bayern's a, a possibility for Bale, probably one of the, the better ones because they've got the finances. I think they've just given Ribery a new contract, a one-year extension, but still the point about them needing to... Did they bring... give him a Zimmer frame as well, Duncan? Was that part of the deal? A second one, yeah. And I'm, and I'm a <laughs> <laughs> I'm a <good> um... <laughs> 
But um, I, I also think you're right about Barcelona. I think Dybala is, is probably beyond them this summer, or it should be beyond them because they spend so much money and their wage bill is so high. They really can't afford to, to go down the line of another mega transfer um, this summer. Unless, of course, they were to lose someone like Umtiti to Manchester United, but but even then, the, the release clause isn't that high, so it wouldn't raise that much money. I know Barcelona are looking at Justin Kluivert, um, who's kind of the he's the cheap option in, in here, and, and you know a very young talent, and he's just turned 19, um, but extremely highly regarded uh, both in Holland at, um, with Ajax Amsterdam, where he's become a key part of the team, and also with several of the top clubs. Manchester City are looking at him as a potential addition to their squad and you can see why because he's, he's absolutely perfect in terms of Guardiola's system you can play him off either wing there's a number 10 two-footed Guardiola loves young quick uh, goal scoring players who will do what they're told fit into his system um, I know the people at Ajax think he's better he has he has more potential than Raheem Sterling so that that tells you um, how highly a club which which has a good you know one of the best youth development systems in football uh, regards him and so he'd, he'd prefer to go to Barcelona but they've got a list of about five players for that position most of whom are um, fairly uh, low profile um, is, but, yeah. is Griezmann a fait accompli for Barcelona, Duncan? That's one that you keep hearing over and over again in terms of the merry-go-round transfer speculation. I don't know if it's a fait accompli, but um, certainly uh, Barcelona are prepared to pay the release clause and it seems that Griezmann wants to go there. So, um, yeah, if you're asking where to put money on in terms of what Griezmann does, then I would say Barcelona's the the choice there and and you know 100 million in, in the, the this market and the past market that suddenly becomes a, a reasonable fee for a player of um of Griezmann's ability when you're paying you know 150 plus for an Ousmane Dembele who can't even um do two keepy ups in a row <laughs> okay guys well moving on to uh, Manchester City now and their win at Southampton giving them 100 points in the Premier League. A fairly uh, well-regarded achievement, it has to be said, and uh, something that is unlikely to be repeated any time soon. Ian, do you think this makes City the best Premier League team in history? No, absolutely not. I don't believe that. I think um, for all the enthralling football and the records that they've broken, remember, it's not just the points record. They've broken records for most games won, most goals scored, most away games won. There's <clears throat> a whole um, plethora of, um, of records which have gone with them. But what they've not done is what Manchester United's team of 1999 did, which is take not just the Premier League, but the FA Cup and the Champions League as well in the same season. And the difference that I see between this Manchester City team and the team of 99 of Manchester United is that the team of, of Alex Alex Ferguson in that, in that year just didn't know when a game was lost. They chased everything, every single game. <coughs> they, <coughs> excuse me, they were under much more pressure than Manchester City had been. Remember, this is a league title that was won <coughs> probably by Christmas. And so... The pressure that they've been under uh, in terms of winning the Premier League has been very little compared to that Manchester United team who were playing um, FA Cup, Champions League semi-finals, quarter-finals, while still chasing down the Premier League. I think they won it two or three weeks 
uh, before the season ended. Um, but it was close up until then, and they were playing under pressure then. And so like, there's nothing to this Manchester City team can't now kick on and be, or at least rival that Manchester United team. But they will have to step up to the plate and do more than just win the League Cup and the Premier League. Yeah, I, I think um, if you're talking about the best Premier League of all team of all time, then you have to look at the context of, of the other things they achieved and, and winning the European Cup the same season is the, is the, you know, the best measure of that and the, the teams they played against. Um, and I, I think you, you look at this season's Premier League and the, certainly the bottom half of the division has been extremely poor. If you look, you look at the numbers um, that you require to avoid relegation, um, if the bottom eight teams in the Premier League this season have got 42 points or less. And there's been seasons where 42 points would pretty much see you down. So the, the, that bottom half hasn't been great. And you, so you've got to take that into account. And I, I think it's just that this idea that the highest point total would determine who the best Premier League team ever is just it's fundamentally flawed. And we don't work that way because they're not... Probably some people out there won't even be aware who held the record before Manchester City took, took it. Um, it was 95 points. It was Chelsea 2004-05. I don't think many people would would have Chelsea 2004-05 for all the quality of that team as the best team um, in Premier League history. You can make an argument for it, but you're probably not going to come to the conclusion it was them. Um, and I think the best example of this 100 points total is to go back and, and look at um, Real Madrid team that was the first to set 100 points in the in La Liga, um, who did it against uh, the best Barcelona team ever, who were you know world, European, and champions had won three uh, consecutive Liga titles, um, set records for goal scoring, which are be actually well beyond what Manchester City achieved this season. But I don't see anyone arguing that they are the, the greatest team in Liga history. And in fact, you, you often see um, articles written about um, Mourinho's uh, coaching style and achievements in the game and his negativity. And you, you see that season written off as a footnote in those, um, in those arguments because it, you know, it doesn't fit with those arguments. But if, if 100 points was the, the test or the maximum, the record points total in the division was a test of who was the best, then that couldn't happen because you would say, oh, well, that Real Madrid team was the best with the Barcelona side that got 100 points the season after them um, and one of the best of all time. But nobody argues that. So we shouldn't be doing it on points totals. Um, you know, our job as journalists is to take the, the, whole, the whole thing into account and talk about the, the quality of the competition and the quality of the football played and the context of how they do in, in, in other other competitions that season, how that affects them. You know, Chelsea last season had a huge points total, but um, they weren't playing European football. So that's an important factor in assessing the quality of that season. Um, so let's not get hung up on 100 points. It's um, really, it's just three digits instead of two digits. An incredible achievement, an amazing season. They've played beautiful football, but the best ever, I don't think so, unfortunately. Yeah, I think you got a very resounding answer to the question, Johnny, as to whether or not Man City are the best Premier League team ever. I think both of us have been fairly uh, forthright in our views on that one. Absolutely. Now, I suppose the question is, while you've both said that it is an exceptional achievement, Guardiola himself will want to uh, make improvements on that team so that he can compete 
uh, in the Champions League next year. Where, where do we see the big improvements being made in this side? Well, I think from my information that City are looking at recruiting three new players, that's not dependent on outgoings. Um, central midfield, uh, a not reserve, but you know, an auxiliary attacking midfielder who can play across all areas of the pitch, so he can play right, uh, central and left. And obviously they went for Riyad Mahrez um, in the January window and didn't um, conclude that. But also, uh, I think centre-back has become a, a bit of a thorn in Pep Guardiola's side. We saw him finish the season um, playing with Vincent Kompany, whose fitness, unfortunately, uh, cannot be relied upon. Um, so, yeah, despite spending over £100 million on John Stones and Americ Laporte, unless those guys really you know, improve through the World Cup and also in pre-season for City, then I think City will be looking to bring in another centre-half as well. Um, it's interesting what Duncan said earlier about Fred because uh, City believed that they had more or less closed that deal in January and certainly since. And if Manchester United have now used up to him in that, then I expect him to go for Jorginho, the Napoli central midfielder who has impressed uh, so much throughout the season when they, they ran Juve so close in the uh, the Scudetto title. So um, it won't be, a, I don't think, a huge window for Manchester City, but it will be a very important one. I, I think they will do as much as Guardiola can press them to do. I think Guardiola's put very clear noises out about um, wanting to have two high-quality players in every position in the squad. I think he's talked about how it's going to be impossible to repeat the achievements of the season because teams um, get blasé after they've won so well and the opposition find ways to play against them, which makes it more complicated. So that for him is a is a huge reason to um, add still more quality to um, the most expensive squad ever. I know people don't like hearing it, but it is significantly beyond anything anyone's ever spent. Significantly beyond all the competition, over a billion on transfer fees committed and um, and salary in just the two season Guardiola's been there. So, um, uh, centre-back is, is, is a good example of that. Um, he's got uh, two £50 million-plus centre-backs that he's often used as reserves this season uh, in Laporte and John Stones. He's got uh, Otamendi in there, who's one of the top five most expensive centre-backs ever. He's got company back in the team and playing him as a starter. But at the end of the season, you see him talking about how they can't rely on company's body and uh, maybe they have to bring another centre-back in. So, you know, he wants another centre-back. He will definitely go for another left-back, probably a high, a very high-quality one. He will definitely go for at least one um, uh, wide attacker to supplement Sani and Raheem Sterling. Sterling is going to put pressure on the club to get a new contract. Um, and we know what his agent is like in these contract situations. So that's a, an open situation. Um, they would love to try and get someone like Kylian Mbappe in if that opportunity arose um, because of financial fair play, sanctions at Paris Saint-Germain. There'll definitely be at least one midfielder. Um, replacement for Yaya Turi wouldn't surprise me if they do too. Um, also, wouldn't it surprise me if he if they manage to find a home for Claudio Bravo and he buys a, a backup goalkeeper who is of a similar style to Ederson at you know some 
some reasonable cost there. So don't be surprised if they go over 200 million in transfer fees again this summer. And don't be surprised even if they go well over 200 million in transfer fees against this summer. And remember, they've upgraded um, a plethora of contracts already, most of them kicking in for next, at the start of next season. Ederson just got a new um, uh, contract that, um, well, it's been described as a seven-year deal. Um, so five five years on, on two year extension on top of the original deal um, and a big pay rise, but he he, he actually was one of the the least well paid um, players in the first team because they got him from Benfica and his wages were so low there. But I I think it will be a big summer for Manchester City again, and I think Guardiola wants to ensure it's a big summer because he knows he needs as much resource and extra firepower as possible to win the Champions League and next season. He's not going to get away with being knocked out um, by uh, Monaco or Liverpool um, and getting the tactics wrong in the game that Abu Dhabi will want to see that um, then at least reach a semi-final and preferably a final next year. Ian, you, you've seen the the way that Manchester United rec- recruit player, Manchester City recruit players, sorry, um, and they often don't go for the established stars. It's often the, the younger, up-and-coming players, obviously still at a great cost. How do they go about finding players with the, the, the right temperament to adapt to Guardiola and his methods? Because we've seen with Zlatan Ibrahimovic and other players of a, a high standing in the game when they work with Guardiola, sometimes it doesn't go that smoothly. Well, they, they don't look at those players um, for that reason, Johnny. They, they do look at players who are malleable and pliable with regards to their um, views on tactics and team setup and everything else, because Guardiola's demands are so high and so specific. And um, that's why they paid so much money for people like Leroy Zane, uh, Ryan Sterling, Kevin De Bruyne, all these guys who are young and willing to learn and willing to adapt to the coach. So you won't see a superstar. You know, for instance, I could never see Cristiano Ronaldo play for Manchester City because Cristiano Ronaldo, or, or indeed Leo Messi for that matter, they dictate where they play and how they play. And Pep could not, you know, that, that's where he fell out with uh, Messi when he was at Barcelona because Messi were demanding too much, um, let's just say, uh, too much from Guardiola regarding his role. Uh, he wanted to change his role in the team. And Guardiola wasn't willing to to be dictated to by Messi, and there was a period of of fractious relationships, which was finally mended by an intermediary. So you won't find that um, Guardiola will go out and I'd say buy established superstars because it's not his style. He prefers to, to I said to take a player that he knows he can mould, a player that he knows that will take directions and will take instruction and will carry it out. So. Um, the recruitment policy for that reason is based on the younger, less experienced, not necessarily less experienced, but certainly less um, opinionated, if you want, uh, player who will not cause problems for the coach because the coach simply won't put up with it and it'd be a waste of money. So um, one of the sort of surprising, um, more surprising elements of Manchester this season, we've seen Fabian Delft play left back. Obviously, that was um, necessitated by the uh, horrible injury to ben- Benjamin Mendy, but I'm sure Duncan's mate Benjamin Mendy is is very much on the Mendy now, and I think he'll be first choice left back next season. Duncan. Yeah, Benjamin will back in, and that's a you know that's a 50 million plus signing, effectively that they've got for the start of next season. I think uh, for the reasons you outline, that's it, it's exactly why Kylian Mbappe is kind of the ideal superstar signing for Manchester City because he's. 
he's a young superstar with um with a good attitude and um still has the mindset that he has to learn as a player and um you have to say if manchester city were able to make that transfer happen you would fear for the rest of the premier league um because to me um killing mbappe is the the real future uh ballon d'or winner he's the guy who who looks to have the chance to um to beat Cristiano Ronaldo and Lionel Messi um, a few years down the line. Okay, guys, well, we're going to move on to our quickfire round. And this week, we are going to have a look at the transfer windows, player of the year and manager of the year. So we're going to start off in the Premier League with the player of the year. Now, if the guys agree, obviously, it's done and dusted. But if they disagree, I'm going to make the final decision controversial as it may be for one of them. So... Start off with yourself, Duncan. Who is your Premier League Player of the Year? Um, the player who got Manchester City to 100 points with uh, a characteristically brilliant through ball um, in the final minute, the final seconds of the game against Southampton at the weekend, uh, Kevin De Bruyne. Ian? Uh, you're going to be disappointed, Johnny, because I completely agree with Duncan on that, that one. I know that um, our Liverpool friends, um, thousands of them that there are, will be very upset that we've not chosen Mo Salah. But the fact of the matter is, where's your medals? Where's your medals? And they haven't won the Champions League yet, you know. And De Bruyne has been absolutely instrumental. He's been the fulcrum of that Manchester City team. He's been exceptional all season. Not only that, remember when he was getting really, really dreadfully tackled and fouled uh, in sort of March, February, March time, other players would have thought, you know what, I'm just going to put my feet up a little bit. I'm not going to put myself in danger. So we've got a World Cup coming up with my country, and he didn't. He just got back up and started playing brilliantly again. That was his response, and for me, that's the mark of a real world class footballer. Okay, uh, admirable adherence to the quickfire round principles there. That was under five minutes, which is unusual. Well done. <laughs> so Kevin De Bruyne is our Player of the Year, Transfer Window Player of the Year for the Premier League. Now, guys, what about Manager of the Year? Only one choice for Manager of the Year has to be Pep Guardiola. Um, yeah, you pr produce a season like that, which is definitely, for all we said earlier, it's definitely one of the greatest, greatest Premier League seasons ever. Not the greatest but one of the greatest ever and, and um, uh, obviously had better resources than anyone else, but you've still got to turn those resources into a, a trophy and he did that in an incredible style. So, manager of the year, Pep Guardiola. Ian? No, I'm disagreeing. My manager of the year is David Wagner of Huddersfield Town. His budget was probably as much as Pep Guardiola loses when he's running for a bus because we all know he loves a bit of public transport. Um bring Huddersfield into the Premier League for the first time, to maintain their Premier League status in the way that they have, beating Manchester United, drawing at Chelsea. They've been outstanding, uh, very, very low resources compared to almost every other club in the Premier League in terms of their budget. And they've played with guile, but also um, expansive and sometimes you know, lovely football to watch. And I think um, in terms of achievement, you know, Wagner's someone who you put in a top four club and I think would excel as well. I've got, I've got a bit of sympathy with that because I, I would note that Wagner was the guy who came up with the tactical system that gave Man City problems first, i.e. blocking off the, the kind of passes from the side into into the area where you know Manchester City scored most of their 12-yard tapping goals um, and he designed the system. It didn't, didn't 
win the first game they played against them. Almost so you're changing your mind, Duncan? Is that what you're saying? I'm not changing my mind. I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm applauding your your uh, your, your your pick of the second best manager in this division. Yeah. It's a fine creative pick, uh, Ian, but I'm having to side with uh, Duncan on this one just on the basis of the amount of records that have been chalked up by Man City and the, just the sheer quality of football. You so- see, Johnny, this is where you fall down. Modern football falls down because they adhere to statistics rather than actual gut feeling about what football is all about. I'm a hipster. What can I say? <laughs> 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 I'm, I'm stroking my beard and saying Pep Guardiola um, so yes the transfer window manager of the year is Pep Guardiola for the Premier League now Champions League player of the year Duncan um, look it's difficult to call this because we haven't had the final yet um, and I think the final will, will have a big part in deciding who the eventual player of the year is um, the obvious two candidates at present are Mo Salah and Cristiano Ronaldo. Um, if you ask me to make the call now, I would expect Real Madrid to win that final. But if you ask me to do it on what they've done in the season so far, you just got to look at the numbers. Um, Salah is being hailed as a future Ballon d'Or winner and he's being hailed for the goals he scored this season. Um, Salah's return uh, in league football in, in all games is... 44 goals in 51 matches. Um, Cristiano Ronaldo, for yet another season, is on more than a goal a game, 43 goals in in 42 matches. Look at the Champions League statistics. Uh, Mo Salah, 14 games, 11 goals. Cristiano Ronaldo, 12 12 games, 15 goals. And And he does it every season, every single season. Not only does he do it every single season, he does it in the big games as well. So uh, for me, Player of the season in the Champions League final. Uh, sorry, in the Champions League. See what happens in the final, obviously. Um, but at present, definitely Cristiano Ronaldo. And again, Duncan, I agree with you on that. Um, on the first of the two choices, I think Cristiano. And again, it's got to be of this season because that's that's the stipulation that Johnny's given us. But his season in the Champions League has been outstanding yet again. You're talking about playing in the world's premier football competition for clubs, and he just performs at a level which no one else can even reach. Um, not just that, he, he plays under pressure, he scored goals to win games in, in added time, whether it be overhead kicks or penalties. And he is, for me, probably the all-time best Champions League player. And, and I'm saying yeah. Champions League in, in this year, and never mind just this season, but for the season, definitely, definitely Cristiano. A very worthy winner there, gentlemen. So Cristiano Ronaldo is the transfer window player of the year. Now, the transfer window manager of the year. I know that it's difficult because we are doing this prior to the Champions League final and that could really define this award. Um, but what's your take? There isn't actually a great selection there. I mean, I'm looking at, at the... Obviously, we've got Jurgen Klopp and um, Zinedine Zidane in the final and it's going to come down between the two of them because I'm looking at teams that have gone um, far in the competition and I wouldn't pick any of the you know, the beaten semi-finalists or even any of the beaten quarter-finalists. So, so that takes you down to Klopp and Zidane. Um, not Eusebio de Frank- Francesco? Not after, not after that first leg against Liverpool. <laughs> It was, it was worse than Pep Guardiola's first leg against uh, Liverpool Anfield in terms of tactical errors and 
and uh, and putting your team in a in a position they were they were unable to recover. Um, Can't argue with that. To be fair, I th- I think it, again it will come down to who wins. Um, uh, you know, if Liverpool win the Champions League, um, uh, having just come back into the competition, um, having definitely less financial resources than several of their opponents. They do have big financial resources and it's kind of underplayed how much has been spent on that team. Uh, down the, the, the FSG years. But um, if they were to beat Real Madrid, um, who've you know won, what, three of the last four, um, then yes, Jurgen Klopp would have to get, to get it. Um, but on the other hand, if, if Zidane wins um, another Champions League, um, and, and in a season where um, you know managed to recover them from a, from a bad Liga campaign to win another Champions League, and with his job on the line, um, that's, that's certainly something Jurgen Klopp hasn't had to, to face here. Then you you give it to Zidane. Um, both of them, I actually think of you know there's, there's the the image is um, is uh, far superior to the actuality of. Um, of their management, um, any kind of Real Madrid insider will tell you that a lot of what goes on there goes down to the the quality of the players um, that he has, the depth of squad he has, and and that his you know what he adds as a manager is isn't as much as, as some of the other uh, top coaches around. And and with Jurgen Klopp, it's kind of a lot of its front, um, and you know as is, I think being exposed to a certain extent with Buvac's, um exit. Um, a lot of work is done by his assistants behind the scene, um, but yeah, at the, if the moment at the moment, if I had to call between them, I'd go for Zidane. Just sorry, sorry, I was watching Wagner's ring cycle there while Duncan was giving that answer. Um, <laughs> all all nine hours, uh, <clears throat> and staying with the German theme. Um, David Wagner, David Wagner's ring cycle. Indeed, I was <laughs> thinking Wagner from the X Factor there. <laughs> <laughs> You, you've oh, honestly, I, I, yeah, dearie me, you boys need some culture education, that's for sure. No, uh, no, I'm, I'm going for Jurgen Klopp. I think a team who um, lost their first Champions League game in the second leg of their semi final against Roma, but still obviously went through in a thrilling 7 6. Um, I think his team, he as a coach, has really uh, risen to the occasion with the Champions League. Um, Easier to do, obviously, when you're not competing for the Premier League title, at least not, you know, realistically. But Liverpool, let's face it, no one has have seen them in the Champions League final at the start of the season. If you, you'd asked anyone, uh, do you think Real Madrid will reach another final? They'd probably said yes. You know, you could ask, you know, uh, my eight-year-old daughter and she'd probably said Real Madrid and she doesn't watch football at all. So, um, whereas Liverpool, I think, have been wonderful to watch. Um, the quarterfinal against Manchester City was just an exercise in tactical genius um, in terms of the way that, well, not tactical genius as such, recognising what his team were good at and their strengths and then encouraging his team to go out and just play the same way, which is a very courageous thing to do against the Manchester City team who you know, have sort of you know, wiped all before them in the Premier League, apart from Liverpool, of course, who beat them at Anfield. So I think Klopp, for me, should he win or not, should get the Champions League manager of the year. Yeah, I'm going to have to agree with you, Ian, there. Uh, I think Liverpool's a very special club when it unites behind a manager. And uh, you can see that in Anfield, the atmosphere, and Klopp has done that superbly. Very entertaining to watch. So the transfer window, Champions League Manager of the Year, is Jurgen Klopp. 
and hopefully the Anfield rap will be asking me on shortly, which is what I've been aiming for <laughs> for quite some time. Shameless you are. Shameless <laughs> McFarland. Shocking. Anyway, I am going to bring this transfer window now to a close. To continue the conversation with us, you can. I'm on Twitter at McFarlane, And more importantly, you can get the guys at Duncan Castles and at GarboSJ. If you want the podcast as soon as it becomes available, please subscribe at iTunes or Acast. And if you enjoyed it, please tell a friend. We'll be back next Tuesday before 3pm. I won't be here because I'm on holiday, so Mr. McGarry is manfully stepping, to t- stepping up to take over. Until then, thanks for listening. <laughs>